Tuesdays this fall, apparently, there's a Tim Hortons boycott of uh, the minimum wage and some of the response, and so some people are boycotting Timmy's on Tuesday. I have a friend who's a big, he's, a, he's a very active in the activist community here in Ottawa, and just trying to follow him on social media, I'm, there's, there's something different every night of the week, and I almost, you know, sometimes when I get together with him, I say, you know, what's the cause this week? And... Uh, I, I know, I can get it from him, what the cause is this week. Um, when we, as human beings and as cultures and societies, face injustice and suffering, uh, we generally fall into two big approaches. Why does this keep on doing this? We're going to be okay? All right, cool. We generally fall into uh, two kind of big approaches. And I, I took as one of my classes in... Uh, in graduate school, I did a, a master's in global studies. So I took some uh, studies on like international development and, and different things like that. And I was really helped in this. And, and I'm kind of sorry if we start out a little intellectual on a sermon on prayer. We'll get there, all right? I actually gave some of this talk, most of this talk at uh, Power to Change last year. I went uh, to campus at Carleton and gave some of this. But I was understanding how we as cultures approach this issues of injustice and human suffering. Um, by a book I read, I took a class on it in seminary, uh, written by uh, this uh, former missionary and aid worker to Africa, his name is David Morans. And he wrote a book called African Friends and Money Matters. And he talked about the role of development on the African continent, and um, just in his introduction even to the book, he described two general approaches to bringing about change and seeking justice that I've actually, it really impacted me and I've found it very helpful. And I'm gonna start here today and then move into the text, the prayer that we're looking at. But he talked about there's basically two approaches to change. He spoke first about, about macro solutions to injustice or to bringing about uh, societal change. Um, macro solutions and micro solutions. Macro solutions, he says, they deal with systems and structures. Uh, they're concerned with efficiencies, and generally speaking with equalities, they're trying to get the systems right and the systems better to, to bring about change and to bring about societal transformation. Uh, they, they deal with equalities. They want to make sure that everybody kind of has an, an equal, uh, either equal treatment or equal access. And Moran's approach, that the macro solution approach, has been the dominant approach of the democratic West. And, and he argues that kind of makes sense because it's only in places where the people have some sort of power that you'll have these kind of macro, uh, macro solution approaches because in order to have the, to, to, to actually think that these solutions are even accessible, you have to be given a sort of, a, 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 at least some level of say in what happens. He contrasts that with the solutions that are generally thought or, or, or sought in the non-Western world. It calls them micro solutions. Microsolutions, as he said, he, he saw this on the ground in, in Africa as he was working. And he, microsolutions approach problems of injustice and human suffering on an immediate level, on a direct level, on a, on a personal level. And microsolutions are not as concerned with the big ideas of equality and justice and fairness for all, but they're concerned with, is my neighbor getting his needs met or her needs met? And so they're, they're, they, they meet the direct needs. And for example, you can see a contrast of this different approach 
often in the traffic patterns of different countries, right? Where you have the, the on the one hand, we have a, a macro level solution, a macro solution where, where we have rules about what light and who goes where and who makes a turn which way and, and who goes at the proper time. Even if, even if the lights break down, we have such a system of order in our minds that we generally will still be able to follow that order. And then on the, on the other side, we have what might be from uh, some of the countries that you've come from, this is how traffic works. Traffic works through personal negotiation with the driver on the other side or coming into the intersection and you kind of like nod and negotiate your way through even as uh, everyone else is negotiating their way through. As an American, um, we're very much on this side. I even find in Canada it's sometimes funny because in Canada what I find when I come to an intersection is often the micro solution of this. And as an American, I'm like, no, there's rules. Whoever gets there first goes, and if you get there at the same time, the guy on the right goes. But no, in Canada, and it's, it's whoever is less polite just goes first. And that's how I find the micro-solution in Canada. While both these approaches to changing the world have their strength, ultimately both fall short in bringing about justice. Macro-solutions often fail in about three ways. For example, they fail first because they're enforcing, they're trying to enforce a fairness from a top-down without actually changing the behavior of the people. But they, they try to enforce by, by acting at the top and, and, and letting it trickle down. Second, they fail because there's often blind spots. None of us are perfect, and if we're trying to seek macro-solutions to problems of injustice or suffering, we are blind at times, often to the actual injustice and suffering in the systems. And so there are blind spots and there are gaps. And often what we've seen in history is this macro-solution approach leads to trading one form of oppression for another. Like they, we've seen in history multitude of examples of where movements start out with high ideals and, and, and to tear down the old oppressive regime, but when they enter into the position of power, they tend to repeat and follow the same patterns. So there's weaknesses in macro-solutions, there's weaknesses in the micro-solutions. By definition, micro-solutions are non-universal, right? It's by definition, they're the negotiating between two near parties, so any solution they come up with doesn't apply maybe the next intersection over. And often micro-solutions are about the relationship you have with someone, and so it becomes about, well, we're getting, we're getting fairness and justice and and alleviating suffering to our relationship in our group of people, but we don't really care about the people out there. This is uh, the Chinese concept of guanxi, is a micro-solution, right? A guanxi being relationship. You scratch my back, I scratch yours, but I'm concerned with this relationship. I'm not so much concerned with ending someone's suffering or oppression over there. The problem with both these approaches, and I'm going to come back, I brought those up because I'm going to come back to them later. The problem with both these approaches is that they fail to deal with the heart. Both fail to deal with the heart. Now, now both approaches do well in different cultures. They both do well in addressing certain things, but ultimately, in bringing about perfect justice and alleviating suffering, they both fail because they do not address the human heart. And they fail to deal with the heart of the matter, which is that injustice is not, does not just exist as something outside of us, but rather is something understood to be 
inside of us, that just injustice, inequality, and selfishness is a matter of the human heart. The Russian writer Tolstoy understood that change must begin with the human heart. He wrote in his treatise on anarchy, there can only be one permanent revolution, a moral one, the regeneration of the inner man. How is this revolution to take place? Nobody knows how it will take place in humanity, but every man feels it clearly in himself. And yet in our world, everybody thinks of changing humanity and nobody thinks of changing himself. We don't get 1,500 people walking down the street with placards and signs saying, know your heart, change your heart. The world needs, we are longing for, a robust understanding of injustice and suffering. And we need that, otherwise we're going to prescribe the wrong cures for our pain. Um, you guys know I uh, found out about four or five years ago that I have a possibly celiac gluten intolerance. But I was struggling with some issues for about 10 years, and during some of those times my doctor thought I had a digestive issue, and so he, he uh, prescribed for me a high-fiber diet. So I went on this high-fiber diet. Well, what do you eat when you're on a high-fiber diet? You do eat a lot of vegetables, but I was like, high-fiber? Well, this cereal says it has a whole bunch of fiber. These breads say that they have a whole bunch of fiber. So I was eating a whole bunch of fiber, breads, cereal, as much as I could, and it was killing me. Right? We need to diagnose the problem correctly, or the solutions we have to injustice and suffering will inevitably and invariably lead to more injustice and suffering. Jesus understood how discouraging the world could be and in teaching us to pray did not evade or avoid the human reality of suffering and justice, but he, he taught us to pray in a way that faces injustice and faces human suffering head on. And that's what we're looking at today. That, that second position of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and here it is, your kingdom come. And Lord, I pray that as we look into this short phrase and, and meditate on it this morning, that you will um, burden our hearts for this world around us, the suffering that we see, and, 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 and call us, Lord, to you, to seek you, to seek your ways, and to seek your kingdom. Amen. Three things today. First, I mean, there's three words here. It's hard to exegete, but this is more of a, a meditation on these three words. First, to pray your kingdom come is to, when you go into your closet, when you go into your prayer room, when you go and you sit before God and you pray, and you pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, to pray your kingdom come is to long for, to yearn for, to hope for, and to seek a greater kingdom. The impulse to pray thy kingdom come is rooted deep in our soul and in our awareness that although there is some beauty and there's some goodness in the world, we also observe and we see a corruption. We sense a disorder 
We see an evil surrounding us and we see an evil within us that seeks an answer. Have you ever walked into a room and just as you walk into the room, you sense something is not right? Maybe somebody has been there that shouldn't have been there and you can sense that. You, you notice there's something off about it. And to pray your kingdom come is to recognize that as we walk through this world, there is that sense that things are not as they should be. There's that sense that, that, that things are not right. It's a universal human reality that at some point in life we're confronted with the fact that this world is off. And some of us hit that through personal suffering. I mean, I've met two people in the last month that have gone through personal situations that I cannot even come close, close to fathoming. I mean, I have lived such an easy life. I have lived such a life of, of just comfort and ease. And then you hear of people who have lost their family, lost their spouse, lost their children, lost their possessions, lost everything. And so some of us come into that room of unease through personal suffering. Others of us come into that room of unease by seeing injustice, systemic injustice, this idea that it's not fair, it's not fair. And you realize that not only do other people not care that it's not fair, but that there are other people who profit off of the fact that it's not fair. And you say, when will anything be done about it? And we've been trying for years and decades and millennia, and we still see something is off, something is not right. This dis-ease in the human condition. The Christian understands that injustice and human suffering are part and parcel of living in this world of sin. The Westminster Confession teaches regarding this phrase in the prayer, to pray your kingdom come, it says in the second position, petition, which is thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. See, the Christian does not see sin, suffering, injustice. We, we don't deny them as just an illusion. We do not just try to cope with them just by saying, well, this is the way the world is. There's nothing that can be done about it. We see sin and injustice and suffering as being part and parcel of our condition as humanity as being under the dominion of sin and of Satan. That there's a rival kingdom to God. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are longing for and we are yearning for a greater kingdom, God's kingdom, recognizing that the room that we have entered has something amiss with it. And so when you pray, this is the thing, when you pray, some people think that Christianity is about just, just believing in God and waiting for heaven, but Jesus taught us to pray every day as you go before God, the first petition or the second petition after hallowed be thy name is actually to confront sin, suffering, and injustice. Do not be ignorant of it. Do not close your eyes to it. Do not run away from it, but set it in front of you daily in your prayer and long for and yearn for a greater kingdom. Thy kingdom come. 
Secondly, the prayer of thy kingdom come is to submit to God's sovereign rule. Tolstoy, the issue is the heart. The issue is the heart. We need a heart transformation before we would see any sort of movement or revolution or change. We need a heart transformation. How do we change the heart? Well, to pray your kingdom come is to submit to God's sovereign world. In fact, sometimes we as Christians, we will be when, when, when an issue of injustice or human suffering comes before us or becomes aware in our culture and we say, well, we are going to pray about this, some will mock us and say, prayer, what good does that do? Why would you pray, you Christians? Because we recognize that the first thing that must be transformed is the heart. And as we pray that kingdom come, it's about God transforming our heart. It's about to pray your kingdom come is to submit to God's sovereign rule. How do we change the heart? First, we need to acknowledge the injustice is not something out there. The evil is not something out there. That which leads to suffering is not simply something out there. It is something within. It is something within each one of us. To acknowledge the injustice in myself, to recognize my own selfishness, my own ignorance, my own blinding pride that dwells within me. Man, the Bible's real. God's word is powerful. It is the first thing that I learned as I became a Christian is that God's word is like a mirror exposing the soul, reflecting the thoughts and the intent, not of all those people I'm judging out there, but of my own heart. And to acknowledge that the evil, the injustice, the oppression lies within. The Bible does not naively downplay our sinful and selfish tendencies and weaknesses. It calls out to the core of our being that our most dangerous enemy, our most dangerous adversary, is our own heart. The heart, it says in Jeremiah, is wicked and deceitful. Who can trust it? We need the mirror of the Word of God exposing us. And we are dangerous to ourselves because we continually deceive ourselves. And that's the entire record of Scripture. is humanity deceiving themselves into thinking that if we define for ourselves good and what is right and what is just, if we take that and define it for ourselves, we think that we will be like God. But the entire testimony of Scripture is in reaching out and taking that for ourselves. We devolve into cycles of oppression and violence. And I don't need the Bible to tell me that because I can observe that in humanity. I can observe that in history. Someone said total depravity is the only empirical Christian doctrine. It can be observed as we go through the annals of history and as we look into the societies that we see set up around us. The 
This, this interior personal level is important. This acknowledgement about the injustice within myself is important because if we just look outward, if we just look outward and we say, you ought, thou shalt, you ought, thou shalt, but we don't apply the law to ourselves, we are nothing but hypocrites. We apply the law first to our own heart, seeing our own wickedness, acknowledging that own evil within ourselves. So even if you're not a Christian today, I would challenge you to consider the good of the Christian gospel that calls out to each person to look inward and to confront the evil with themselves. But second, the Christian gospel calls us to something greater. It calls us to transformation. That, that we, by the power of God, can be transformed more and more into the image of God. We can be more and more transformed to bear the image of Christ. But we all know the frustration of, of seeking good, of wanting to do well, of wanting to do right, but finding within ourselves that we have not the power to carry it out. Isn't that one of the things, I'm trying to think of a movie that has this, but I can't think of one, but isn't that something that, it's one of the most powerful things I see time and time again when you, when you watch stories or you watch movies, is the main character thinks he's going down a path where he's being heroic, Right? And he, and he thinks he's seeking justice, he's seeking righteousness, he's seeking good, he's seeking to bring an end to suffering. But I love the movies, it's just a powerful thing, when at some point it's revealed that all his works toward good have actually brought about more injustice and pain and suffering. It makes a really interesting movie, but man is that painful when it happens to us. That for all our intent, we see not the power to carry out the power to transform, to change. And that's why into our world, God came near in the person of Christ. That's, that when, when, when Jesus was preaching, we pray thy kingdom come, he had already been preaching a gospel that said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That idea of being at hand is an interesting phrase. Uh, linguistically, grammatically, what it means is that the kingdom of God has broken in, it's at hand, it is near, but the, but, the, but the tense that is used is a tense that suggests that something has once and for all definitively happened, and now we are living and experiencing the effects of it. It's called the perfect tense. And so John the Baptist preached and proclaimed, repent, for the kingdom of God has broken in now and is going to, we are now going to live in the aftermath of what has broken in. Jesus then went off and preached, preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, 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 he, and he went around and he, he went around loving, proclaiming the good news to the poor. He went around lifting up the, the, the hearts of the masses. He, he went around uh, loving the sinners and, and, and touching the lepers. And, and when he would do all of that, there was a time where in front of the Pharisees he was casting out, freeing people, delivering people from the power of Satan. And they're saying, you're doing this by the power of Satan. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm doing this to reveal to you that the kingdom of God is in your midst what we see Jesus proclaiming in Scripture is that where he is and where he is received and where he draws near, the rule, the reign, the supremacy, the authority of God has come and broken into this world. 
Jesus showed us the life lived by divine power. He called us to follow him, yet pointed us to the power from God as a power for living. In, in, what, what do we do? We, do this, we are the kingdom that opposes God's kingdom. And so we killed him. We killed him. We murdered him in rebellion to God's kingdom. But God raised him from the dead and gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. In his death, burial, and public resurrection, Jesus revealed to us that God in his love was not content to leave us wallowing in our sins, but is offering forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ for those who would come to him. And so that's the prayer of hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name is yearning for a greater kingdom. And hallowed be your name is seeing that the kingdom of God has drawn near in Jesus Christ and submitting, receiving, accepting, embracing now his kingdom. And in doing so, he, he makes us a citizen of his kingdom. He welcomes us into his kingdom and he begins to give us the same power within us that was at work in Jesus. That's hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name, Jesus. Thy kingdom come. I love the way how John MacArthur puts this. He says, If salvation is it is the recognition that the sinner bows the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is the recognition that Jesus Christ is king over my life. That God's program replaces my program. That my sovereign redeemer is the ruler of my life. And his rule eclipses my sovereignty and my own self-will. So that what is true of salvation is that the believer concerns himself with then on with the kingdom of God. And so he prays or she prays, thy kingdom come. There's nothing here about my agenda. There's nothing here about my ambition, my dreams, my goals, my preoccupation. All of those are placed, as it were, on the altar in submission to the lordship of Christ. It's fine to have those goals and those dreams and ambitions in some direction in your life. But all of it is put on the altar as a sacrifice to Christ who can do with it what he pleases. That's the heart of the sinner at the point of salvation. He is sick of himself. He is tired of running his own life. He wants to no longer, he wants no longer either the effort or the effect of his independence and desires the forgiveness of sin, the hope of eternal life. And for that, he will gladly submit to the sovereignty of Christ. God's purposes take over. God's will takes over. God's desire takes over. And if, you're not, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, that is the prayer, thy kingdom come. I yearn for a greater kingdom. I yearn for a kingdom of righteousness, justice, and peace. But I see neither the power in myself nor the will or desire in myself to pursue it. And so God, I need you, Jesus. I need you. Draw into my life. Transform me. Change me. I submit now and I humble my knee. I bow my knee before Jesus, my King, my Lord, my Savior. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. It's a freeing submission. It truly is. It's that I can't do this anymore. You're my king. You're my Lord. You're my God.
So once the individual's heart is transformed and set into submission to Jesus and his kingdom values, now I want to show you, I want to show you how Jesus works out his kingdom values through us and into the world. Right? I, we, we want to change the world. We live in an age that seeks justice. How? What's, what is God's answer? What is God's program? Well, first, his program, as I've said, is to change us and to transform us from the inside out. So it actually changes. We have something to say to the heart. I'm, I'm looking out. I see somebody here who's active in speaking out against pornography and about the slave trade. That's not, nothing is going to change unless people's hearts change and are transformed. Because the demand is there to objectify and the demand is there to enslave. But we can do other things as well. We don't stop there. But we have a gospel that changes and speaks to the heart. Secondly, now we're ready to see how Jesus actually works his kingdom through those macro and micro solutions I talked about. The first principle is a micro solution. I call it the neighbor principle. And I don't know if I call it that. It's from Jesus' parable. The Good Samaritan. I'm not like a genius. Jesus told the parable. The, love your neighbor. Well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the, the principle in that, parier, in that, in, in that, in that parable is that, that God is calling his people. God is calling those who are praying thy kingdom come to embrace his value and to embrace it on a practical direct and personal level. This is the micro-solution of being in proximity to those who are needy and oppressed. And, and notice how often, as you read the New Testament, notice how often Jesus grounds kingdom values in relationship. For example, the Good Samaritan, but I'll read, I don't have the verses on the screen, but I'm going to read from Luke 6, 27 to 28. And as I read this, consider how direct and personal, this application is of this neighbor principle. Jesus says to his people, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who use you. As you're on your knees praying, thy kingdom come, hear the words of Jesus, love your enemies, do good to those who abuse you, pray for those who persecute you. He goes on to say, to the, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so you do to them. For if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Guanxi, this idea of relationship, you scratch your back, I, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Everybody does that. But Jesus says, what benefit? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you'll not be judged. Condemn not, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. 
For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So much of the kingdom ethic of the New Testament is loving, doing good, and giving to the people who are in front of you. This principle of proximity. Think about James. James talks about the idea of favoritism, whether it's social, economic class, whether it's ethnic favoritism. But James says you're gathered together in a service and somebody comes in wearing shoddy clothes. How do you treat that person? This is the principle of proximity, the neighbor principle. I was at a conference Friday morning, a conference dedicated to this prayer, thy kingdom come. It was called Jesus and Justice. It was with a number of Christians around the city who are dealing with issues of poverty, slave trafficking, and the refugee issue. And the speaker was a church planter. He was actually a, I think he was an go associate gospel church church planter who now is with the, um, uh, an organization that works um, for, for, for justice, International Justice Mission. And he spoke of when this first started impacting his heart as a Christian pastor and as a church planter was they moved into the neighborhood in which they were trying to uh, reach for the gospel. And he was reading from the book of Matthew. Do I have it here? No, I didn't put the verse there. I think it's Matthew 23, where Jesus is speaking, woe to the Pharisees, you tithe from your spice rack, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, righteousness, justice, and peace. And he said, whoa, why isn't that in the mission statement of our church? And so he started meeting and getting to know his neighbors, this principle of proximity, just getting to know them, and they would come and talk to him about their problems. And soon after that, one woman came up to him and said, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I don't know what to do. My landlord is telling me that he will reduce my rent by $100 a month if I sleep with him. She says, I know the Bible would tell me not to do that. I know that God would tell me not to do that. But I'm a single mom. I have three kids, and $100 would go a long way. He says, that is when I realized that living this neighbor principle, that living in proximity with people, means I can't just stay in my closet after I pray thy kingdom come. But it actually calls me in to leave my Christian bubble and to go and stand alongside and to advocate for people who are suffering. That's what we're talking about, the neighbor principle. It, it, it begins to change us, not because we have these huge ideas about changing the world, because we're not, we're not naive. But what we begin to do is we begin to saturate our neighborhoods with living counterculturally and living lives of love and proximity with those around us. So that's the micro solution that Jesus commands his people. He commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But how does that change and transform the world? Well, there's a macro solution as well. The macro solution is found, for example, in Matthew 13. I'll call it the leaven principle. Or it could be called the mustard seed principle. Matthew 13, 31 says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nest in its branches. 
Going on in verse 33, it says he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven or leaven or yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The idea is we take these tiny, tiny, tiny steps and we work it through the lump of the world and the world becomes saturated with the kingdom ethic of God. You're like, I see you going, well, what does that look like? What it looks like is this. What if, what if we had on every neighborhood, what if in every neighborhood on this planet we had a group of people committed together to working with one another to pray for thy kingdom come and to love and to do good and to give expecting nothing in return? And in every neighborhood on this planet we have a group of subversive people plotting how to love and to spread this kingdom ethic to those around you. Wouldn't that be an amazing strategy if we could transform the heart of a people of God and if we could place them all around the world in these little communities, countercultural, subversive communities that are meeting together to pray thy kingdom come over this neighborhood. And if we could replicate that and reproduce that around this world, it'll be like yeast making its way through the whole loaf. And that, my friends, is the global multinational expansion of the church. That is exactly the strategy that Jesus gave to his apostles. Go into all the world. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of many nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And lo, I'm with you Always. So often in our generation, we think the church is this irrelevant vestige of an earlier age, and the real action is in our activism and in our protest and in our politics. But Jesus will tell you no, the real action is preaching the gospel of the kingdom to the nations, transforming hearts, living counterculturally, loving your neighbors as yourselves, knowing them, getting out of your bubble, blessing them and then reproducing this in every neighborhood on the planet. And the kingdom of heaven is like this little tiny mustard seed. You don't think it amounts to anything, but it grows up and it becomes the biggest tree. That's we pray as we pray that kingdom come. Does it work? It actually works. I came across, and it doesn't, we don't do it because it works. We do it because we're commanded by our Lord. But I came across a couple articles that are really encouraging. I want to share a couple of them. The first one was uh, by Robert Woodbury in the American Political Science Review. This is not a Christian publication. And in 2012, he did research on the effects of Protestant missionaries worldwide. And this was his findings. Areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations. Or as Christianity Today summarized the findings, in short, if you want a blossoming democracy today, the solution is simple. If you have a time machine, send a 19th century missionary. This article was published in 2012, but it was echoing something that was observed even a couple years later. This was Matthew Paris in the Times of London who wrote an article called, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. He said, 
He wrote, as he went back to Malawi where he'd grown up, he said, traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too. One I've been trying to banish all my life but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs. It stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and it has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I have become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the works of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Change the heart. Love your neighbor. Plant churches. Thy kingdom come. So in praying thy kingdom come, we are yearning for a greater kingdom. In praying thy kingdom come, we are submitting to the reign and rule of God. But also, know this, in praying kingdom come, we are confessing our human limitations. The prayer, thy kingdom come, now please be clear, I'm not saying we don't work toward a more just word, world, but to pray your kingdom come is a confession or an admission of human limitation. That for all of our desire for a world of righteousness, justice, and peace, and all of our work in the world of loving our neighbor and planting churches and transforming communities and working toward a more just society, ultimately all human endeavors will fall short in ending suffering, eradicating injustice, and bringing in peace. This is why the Apostle Peter says we're citizens not of this place. We're citizens of heaven. We are eagerly awaiting a Savior from there. A Savior from heaven who will come to establish God's rule on earth in material way. We only just recently celebrated Christmas. This is the work of the Messiah. He did not complete this work when he came the first time and we are waiting still for the advent of the Messiah once again to fulfill promise given in Isaiah 9-6 for unto us a child is born to us a son is given the government the government will be on his shoulder whose shoulder the one who is the prince of peace the one who is Emmanuel the one who is everlasting father mighty God wonderful counselor of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over all his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is why we pray when we pray kingdom come. I'm yearning for that kingdom. I see when I pray the kingdom come that injustice is something within my heart and I submit to the rule and reign of Christ. And I recognize in all that God is doing good in this world, it will not completely come to fulfillment until he sends his son Messiah to return, to bring in his kingdom of righteousness, justice, and peace. That's a prayer, man. I read a sermon this week that said this is the prayer that changes the world. You want to change the world, go march, fine. Pray. 
Pray. Thy kingdom come. Come, Lord, quickly. Heavenly Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Lord, we live in a world of injustice. We live in a world of suffering. We live in a world of evil. We live in a world that is under the kingdom, dominion of sin and Satan. And there is no release. There is no escape. There is no breaking that bondage except that you sent your son to draw near, to to proclaim to us the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to break the bondage of sin and Satan for all who would come by their knee bowing before you and embracing your kingdom and embracing your son. And to as many as received him who believed in his name, you, Father, gave the right to become children of God, to become citizens of your kingdom. And we eagerly await a Savior from there. Lord, send Jesus. Lord Maranatha, come, Lord, quickly. Establish righteousness, justice, and peace on this earth. In your name we pray. Amen. And that's